This is a Daily Wildcat production. Wildcat crime listeners should be aware that this episode contains descriptions of murder, violence, systemic racism, and miscarriages of justice, and may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome to another episode of Wildcat Crime, the monthly podcast dedicated to taking a closer look at some of the most infamous crimes to occur at the University of Arizona and within the Wildcat community, brought to you by the Daily Wildcat and Camp Student Radio. My name is Vanessa Ontiveros, and I'll be your host. We're back. Season 2 is here, my lovely listeners. I thank you for your patience during the summer. I'd like to say I was away, uncovering long-forgotten mysteries and globe-trotting in a fabulous private jet, financed by a generous but mysterious benefactor. But really, I was in Tucson, covering criminal justice for the Arizona Daily Star. I am nothing, if not on brand. This season, we'll be diverting just a tad from our usual topic of murder, with a few episodes centered around other types of crime, so get ready. But for this episode, I'll be covering what is easily the most requested crime in this show's, admittedly brief, history. If I were to ask you to name a famous crime at the University of Arizona, what would you say? For most people, there is no other answer than the stabbing in Graham Greenlee Residence Hall. But how much do you actually know about the story of the Graham Greenlee murder? Could you remember why the murder happened? Who were the women involved? Could you even remember their names? Mia Henderson was murdered by Gallerica Harrison in the dorm room they shared in the early morning hours of Wednesday, September 5th, 2007. That's the short version, the one most people are familiar with. But the full story, before and after the murder itself, is far more complex than just a one-sentence summary. For one thing, both women were members of the Navajo Nation, and were considered success stories after being accepted to and attending university. And although a university student being murdered certainly is a rare occurrence, a Native American woman being murdered is disturbingly common, which I will discuss later on in the show. So, since inquiring minds want to know, here it is. The full story of the Graham Greenlee murder. An interesting note about the story before I get further into things. The stories of the two people associated with this crime, the victim, Mia Henderson, and the murderer, Gallerica Harrison, are often entwined with each other. There are lots of possible reasons for this. For one thing, both women were members of the Navajo Nation. As many people of color will attest to, plenty of people will confuse one person for the other just because they are the same race. 
Several studies have proven that people are much better at differentiating faces of people belonging to the same race as them, and struggle to differentiate people of other races, according to a really fantastic article on the subject from the Washington Post entitled, Why Do My Coworkers Keep Confusing Me With Other People? Because I'm Asian, by Iris Kuo. I recommend my lovely listeners go check it out. So, that could be one contributing factor. Another could be that they were both considered success stories for growing up on reservations, being well-rounded teens who were heavily involved in school and extracurriculars, who earned scholarships to go study at UA. Their seemingly parallel lives were best examined, at least in my opinion, in a 2007 article from the Associated Press by Pauline Ariaga and Felicia Fonseca entitled Tragedy Shattered Navajo Nation which was a monumentously helpful source in researching this story. But just because these women had lives with some similarities does not mean we should consider them one in the same or interchangeable or disregard their significant differences. That would be apathetic of us as consumers of crime media and deeply unfair to Mia, who died by Galerica's hand. So let's talk about Mia Janelle Henderson. Princess Mia, they called her, according to a 2008 article from the Navajo Hopi Observer by Rosanda Suiptopka Thayer entitled Remembering Mia Henderson, which also greatly helped with the script. She sometimes went by Mighty Mia. Multiple articles written after her death describe her as something of a star. She was the captain of her high school softball team, and she apparently took the sport very seriously. Her softball coach at Tuba City High School described her as humble and sweet, nurturing and analytical. She was also a fantastic student who excelled in school. She was a member of the National Honors Society and one of the top ten students in her graduating class, according to the Associated Press. She wanted to be a doctor and wanted to study genetics or sports medicine and her chance came when she earned a Chief Manuelito scholarship to study at the University of Arizona. According to the AP article, the scholarship provided $7,000 a year for impressive Navajo students. She was a biology major. Before her freshman year, what would be her only year at college, she was one of 25 students who got the chance to spend seven weeks working on biomedical research projects at the University of Arizona. She studied albinism and Native Americans. Meryl Zwate, a professor of surgery at the University of Arizona, worked with Mia as the director of the program. After Mia's murder, Wate spoke with the Associated Press about her memories of Mia. She said, quote, There's nothing she couldn't have done. She loved the reservation. She loved her culture. She loved her family. She loved her grandmother. But she saw something outside the reservation, as well, that she wanted to be a part of. End quote. Mia was apparently very devoted to her family. In a speech she gave during her summer program, Mia thanked her family for supporting her throughout school. She also made social media posts honoring her mother, grandmother, and other women in her life, according to findagrave.com. Finding people who knew Mia and were willing to speak on this show was an uphill battle. Her family really didn't talk to the press after what happened. Most people who knew her do not seem to want to revisit the tragedy. 
However, as fate would have it, the father of our investigative editor, Alana Minkler, met Mia. Sam Minkler is an associate professor of photography at Northern Arizona University and the professional photographer who took Mia's graduation pictures. After her death, these would become some of the most widely circulated pictures of her. Here's what he remembered about her and the photo shoot. The family contacted me and uh, asked me if I could do her senior photographs. And um, I said yes, and um, we made we scheduled time and sent everything. And then they came in one day, and I, I photographed them. I photographed her, and she wore a traditional Native American outfit um, with velveteen shirt and uh, like a skirt, uh, Navajo style, kind of more traditional. She wore lots of jewelry, some uh, earrings, and she wore uh, bracelets and, you know, just turquoise, uh, silver turquoise jewelry. It was very, very uh, sophisticated looking and and she was really, I, can, I knew she was very uh, pleasant as well as very, obviously very intelligent as well. I had a, good, a really good personality. I know that the parents also wanted a more Americanized clothing as well. I think that's what mainly she wore anyway. But the traditional outfit was mainly for graduation pictures that they could remember her. So I, t- I photographed her and, and I spent uh, maybe like three hours doing that. And I remember just really enjoying the process and they were really pleasant. Um, they were all there. Mia Henderson and Gallerica Harrison met at the beginning of the 2007 school year. Both were students involved in the UA's first year's scholar program, according to the Associated Press. This program, which, as far as I can tell, is no longer around, was designed to help incoming Native American students adjust to college life, which can be a rough transition for anyone. According to the AP, only 812 out of 3,700 students were Native American in the 2006-2007 to school year. In 2007, 50 students were involved in the program, including Mia and Gallerica. They were paired up as roommates to live in a themed community in Graham Greenlee called Autumn Key, or the People's House. Now, this themed community is still around, though it has since relocated to Coconino Residence Hall. According to the Housing and Residential Life website, quote, This themed community provides a welcoming, comfortable, and supportive living and learning environment for Native American students that affirms Native American cultural identity and emphasizes education, culture, empowerment, and community. End quote. But that was not the reality of the situation for Mia. The school year started on August 20th. By August 28th, Mia had filed a police report with the University of Arizona Police Department, alleging that she had found her social security card and cat card in Gallerica's wallet. We know that UAPD interviewed Gallerica the next day, when she admitted that she had stolen the cards. She also confessed to stealing Mia's checkbook and cashing a check for $500. Later on, a second student would also accuse Gallerica of theft. But she was not arrested for this. Mia's friend, London Young, who was also a UA student at the time, later testified that the UAPD officer who responded to the theft seemed to minimize the situation. 
Mia ended up staying with London for at least one night after the theft, according to London's testimony. According to the Navajo Hopi Observer article and testimony told during the trial, Mia also told the Dean of Students, Dormitory Housing Administrator, and the Native American First Year Scholar Program about the theft, but was not taken seriously. This would later become the subject of a lawsuit her family filed against the state of Arizona, UA, and the Arizona Board of Regents, who are the governing body for the state's three public universities. I could not find any articles that revealed how that lawsuit ended. According to an article from the Daily Star by Kim Smith, Mia also asked that Galerica be reassigned to live in another room, but this request was not honored, according to the lawsuit. A Daily Wildcat article by Claire Conrad and Lindsay Hoshaw, the first one the Wildcat wrote about the murder, said that the UAPD police chief at the time, Anthony Dakin, stated that Mia had been offered other living arrangements, presumably that she would be the person to move out of the room, but declined. However, testimony given at the trial seemed to imply that she and Galerica were not living in the same room at the time of the murder. Galerica went home for Labor Day weekend. Mia would never get to go home again. Something that I want to note is that we know a lot of the details about the crime because of the testimony at the trial. And the trial was very exactingly chronicled in a blog called In Memoriam of Mia Janelle Henderson. I do not know who wrote the blog, other than that their username is Koos2000, spelled K-O-O-S, and that they must have been a friend of Mia's, and that is reflected in the writing. I try to be comprehensive on this show, but if you really want a detailed play-by-play -play of the trial, go and check out the blog. Now, I know that this is a true crime podcast, but warning, this is where it gets gruesome. In case anyone does not want to hear the details of the murder, skip to 17 minutes and 15 seconds. According to trial testimony, Galerica texted a friend, Stacy Wallace, asking if Mia was still in her room around 2.30 a.m. on September 5th. We also know that Galerica had bought a knife at Target recently. In the early morning hours of September 5th, Galerica stabbed Mia 23 times while Mia slept in their room. Most of the stabs were literally in Mia's back, and seven of those stabs could have been fatal, Dr. David Winston of the Pima County Medical Examiner's Office would testify at trial, which was reported on by the Tucson citizens A.J. Flick. Mia must have woken up at some point during the murder because she had defensive wounds on her right hand. However, one of the stabs punctured Mia's lung. Multiple witnesses heard someone scream out at around 5.45 a.m. Some said they specifically heard, Help me, Stacy, presumably a reference to witness Stacy Wallace, who lived in the hall. Police arrived on the scene by 4.47 a.m. There they found Mia, who was bleeding from her back and fully unresponsive. Witnesses also saw Galerica in the hall with blood all over her and a large cut in her leg, according to the Tucson citizen's A.J. Flick. She was also crying. The timeline here gets a little murky. We know that Galerica was taken to the University Medical Center for her non-life-threatening injuries, which were later revealed to have been self-inflicted. Mia was taken shortly after and pronounced dead on arrival, around 6.30 a.m., according to a Daily Wildcat article by Claire Conrad and Lindsay Hoshaw. We also know that by the time Galerica was released from the hospital on the afternoon of September 5th, she was arrested and charged with first-degree murder. 
According to the Tucson Citizen and the Daily Wildcat, Gallerica initially told police untrue stories to try to throw the trail off herself. First, she told officers that she had lied when she admitted to stealing Mia's social security card, cat card, and checks. She said Mia had threatened her with a gun and made her confess to those things. She then told officers that an unknown man had been in the room with Mia when she came in. The man made her and Mia sit on a bed, talking to them before he grabbed a knife and attacked the women. Galerica said she ran away, screaming for help, that the man was the one who killed Mia and attacked her. She would later switch her story again and say that she had killed Mia, but it was self-defense after Mia attacked her first. That was the story she was sticking to come trial. A tape of Galerica saying these things in her initial September 5th police interview was played at the trial and recounted in the Tucson Citizen articles by A.J. Flick and in the memorial blog for Mia. At some point before the murder, Galerica also wrote a letter impersonating Mia and tried to make it seem like her roommate was considering killing herself, a detail which prosecutors would later point to be as being evidence that the murder was premeditated. Galerica initially pled not guilty due to reasons of self-defense. Her bail was initially set at $50,000, but was raised to $500,000 after Mia's parents asked for it to be increased in a written statement, according to the Tucson Citizen. They wrote, quote, We are still coping with the tragic loss of our beloved eldest child, and knowing that Harrison is set free on bond will greatly add to our emotional, spiritual stain, which will affect the way we function as parents to our living children and in everyday activities. End quote. The trial took place over six days. As I mentioned earlier, a detailed account of the trial is available on the blog In Memoriam Mia Janelle Henderson. I also spoke with former Tucson Citizen reporter A.J. Flick, who covered the trial, as I have mentioned earlier in this podcast. She remembered how crowded the courtroom was, as everyone wanted to see where this case would go next. Yes, yes, I was there from start to finish. Pretty high-profile case. Oftentimes, you don't you don't attend every day, or uh, maybe I, I attended a few of the hearings, the important hearings as well. So, um, it, but it was pretty high-profile, and people were interested in it. So, I attended a lot of the hearings, and then um, um, every day of the trial. Oh, it was it was packed. There were friends and families on 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 both. Um, sides of, um, you know, both uh, Mia and Galerica, um, people there for them. And then there were a lot of people um, just curious. So, uh, so it was pretty, pretty full every day. And I, I don't, I don't recall that it was so big that people were standing in line and being turned away, but, um, but it was pretty, pretty busy every day. A.J. agreed that, from the beginning, the trial was clearly not going to go in Galerica's favor. There were far too many witnesses and far too much evidence against her. Even her defense attorney's opening statements were, in my opinion, nonsensical. Galerica confessed to the stabbing. The self-defense theory did not hold any water, however. And the details of the crime, including the faked suicide note and literal stabs in the back, all but guaranteed a guilty verdict. In some ways, Galerica's guilt was not the question of the trial, but rather her motivations. Yeah, yeah, I, I think there was very, very little doubt that she had had killed Mia, but 
the big question was why. That's what everybody wanted to hear. What actually happened? Uh, what led up to her murder? And um, and, and then also to see um, Galerica's reactions to things, which she really didn't seem to express any remorse. And, and that's not, you know, it, it's not unusual that a defendant won't show remorse uh, because they're told not to, <laughs> because remorse, you know, indicates guilt. But but there really seemed to be a lack of comprehension with Galerica over what she had done and how wrong it was. Uh, so that was very interesting to see, and 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 I would say that the the biggest factor was just people wanting to know why this happened during the trial. All the information we have already looked at during this episode came to light. Essentially, it seems that Galerica killed Mia, not in legitimate self-defense, but because Mia had discovered her theft and went to the police and school officials about it. On the sixth day, the jury found Galerica Harrison guilty of first-degree murder, forgery, and taking the identity of another. Ultimately, in November 2008, Pima County Superior Court Judge Nanette Warner sentenced Galerica to life in prison without the possibility of parole, the strongest sentence available as the prosecution did not seek the death penalty, according to the Tucson citizen's A.J. Flick. Prior to sentencing, the person running the memoriam blog for Mia wrote posts asking people to contact the judge and share their stories about how the loss of Mia had impacted them, presumably so Galerica would get a more serious sentence. The person running the blog also shared a letter from Mia's mom, which I'm going to read in its entirety, since Mia's family did not really talk to the press much, so this is one of the few writings we have from them. Quote, We have made it through the murder trial State versus Harrison. It was incredibly difficult. We are one step closer to bringing some closure to this trial. I have attached a letter regarding a letter drive regarding the sentencing hearing for November 24th and 25th, 2008. Please read the letter, and if you feel motivated, we would appreciate a letter of support for Mia Janelle Henderson. Many of you have been my rock of prayer, and I can never repay you for your generosity of spirit. Just know that I appreciate and love each and every one of you. You are all wonderful people, young and old, and great parents. Respectfully yours. Jen Henderson, end quote. Galerica's defense attorney appealed the decision, and the legal process for that would go on until 2013, when her life sentence was reaffirmed, according to an Arizona Daily Star article by Patrick McNamara. 25 members of Mia's family, 25 people who must have been absolutely gutted by her death, gave victim impact statements during the appeals process. Mia's mother, Jennifer Henderson, told the judge that her family burned all of Mia's belongings, as it is tradition in Navajo culture to get rid of anything that belonged to a deceased family member. The only thing they kept was a pair of booties Mia had worn as a baby. Jennifer also said that she can rarely talk about Mia anymore. Mia's father, Henry Henderson, said that he could forgive Galerica if only she seemed sorry at all for the murder, according to the Daily Star. In regards to the relationship between his daughter and Galerica, he said, quote, If only Miss Harrison would have given her a chance, I think it would have been a win-win, because she could have learned from her. End quote. 
Pima County Superior Court Judge Scott Rash reaffirmed the life in prison without the possibility of parole sentence. Today, Gallerica Harrison resides at the Perryville Prison in Goodyear, Arizona. It goes almost without saying that this murder shocked people, both on campus and beyond. I, I, I didn't even realize that um, anything had ever happened until later. I saw them one time, uh, maybe a year later or something, and um, and I, I had heard the news that something happened, and I didn't never I never realized it was Mia, and it really shocked me when I did see him about a year later that that it was her that had, you know, that she had passed there in um, the U of A. And uh, they were saying that um, the mother, the parents, I mean, they, they were um, uh, concerned. Um, I think Mia had, had asked to be moved or she wanted something different, a, a different situation for living, not with this person. And that um, she had wanted to to move, but it just never. I mean, that's what I understand. Like it, they never moved or changed the situation. But I was absolutely shocked, and she was such a beautiful human. I've talked about this before on the show, but it is always especially tragic when a young person dies. At the time of writing and producing this episode. There had been another recent student death on the University of Arizona's campus. Last week, on October 10th, a student died after falling from a walkway at Posada San Pedro Residence Hall. That's all we really know for sure at this point, as UAPD is still investigating the death and will likely not be releasing much information until they are done. I covered the story for the Daily Wildcat, and naturally, my mom read it. When we talked on the phone, she lamented the idea that a parent would send their child away to school only to learn that that child is now dead. The Wildcat saw similar sentiments on our Facebook post about it. No one expects to die at college. When we spoke, A.J. Flick summed up why this story was so heartbreaking. When, when the story broke, um, it, was, it was very shocking at the time. People don't get killed on campus very often and um, it, it was also unusual that it involved two female students um, so so when we first heard that Mia had been killed um, a lot of people were in shock and um, especially the fact that they were Native American um, it was just kind of a surprising news story to hear about and, and it was so sad and we didn't understand when it first happened the circumstances around it. And the more we found out about it, especially when it came to time for um, Galerica's trial, um, just so sad that um, her life ended that way. Um, not only the cause, but you know the brutality of it. And um, and, and so it was just a pretty shocking murder case for sure. While violent deaths at colleges are very, very rare, making up less than 3% of all youth homicides in the period between 1992 to 2015, according to data from the National Center for Education Statistics, violent deaths among Native American women are painfully common. 
The problem is so bad that there is even a name for the epidemic of Native women who experience violent ends to their lives. Missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. I think it's safe to assume that my lovely listeners are generally people who like to keep up with true crime. So, it is possible that this is not the first time you are hearing this term. In fact, I hope this is not the first time you're hearing this, and that the next couple of minutes on this show will be review for you. However, if this is news to you, be prepared to feel deeply disheartened, even more than normal on a podcast about death. Because each of these statistics represent thousands of women and girls affected by the violence. It's been said by Indigenous American activists that there's not a single family untouched by the epidemic. Everyone knows someone who has been missing or murdered. Now, Mia's murder, while fully tragic in its own right, does not necessarily fit this category, as the motivation for Gallerica's crime was to stop Mia from telling people about the theft and getting her in trouble, as opposed to motivations like power or lust or colonialism. However, I still want to take some time to examine the missing and murdered epidemic a little bit further. According to data from the Indian Law Resource Center, quote, More than four in five American Indian and Alaska Native women have experienced violence, and more than one in two experienced sexual violence. Alaska Native women continue to suffer the highest rate of forcible sexual assault and have reported rates of domestic violence up to ten times higher than the rest of the United States. End quote. Eighty percent. More than eighty percent. No matter how many times I say that number, it becomes no less disturbing. The Department of Justice has found that indigenous women are murdered at 10 times the rate of non-native women in the U.S. According to the Indian Law Resource Center, almost all of the violence against Native American women is perpetrated by non-native peoples, approximately 96%. In regards to sexual violence, statistics vary, but as I said earlier, the rate is generally cited as one in two or one in three women have been victims. A lot of that violence occurs on tribal lands. According to the Tribal Law and Policy Institute, for major crimes in which the victim is Indian and the perpetrator is non-Indian, the case falls under the jurisdiction of the federal government. Recently, laws have been changed so that Native nations can pursue domestic violence cases between Native and non-Native peoples. But that does not change the fact that, generally, Native nations do not have the power to legally seek justice for their own people. According to the Indian Law Resource Center, quote, Between 2005 and 2009, U.S. attorneys declined to prosecute 67% of the Indian country matters referred to them involving sexual abuse and related matters. Even grimmer, due to the lack of law enforcement, many of the crimes in Native communities are not even investigated. End quote. Looking further into the crimes that are not investigated, the Urban Indian Health Institute released a landmark study on missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls in 2018. As far as I can tell, it is easily one of the most comprehensive studies on the epidemic. What it found was deeply disheartening. 
the researchers Abigail Echo Hawk, a member of the Pawnee Nation of Oklahoma, and Anita Lucchese, who is of Southern Cheyenne descent, found that 5,712 cases of missing indigenous women and girls were reported in 2016, according to the U.S. Department of Justice's Federal Missing Persons Database. However, only 116 of those cases were logged in the National Missing and Unidentified Persons System, or NamUs. Echo Hawk and Lucchese also collected information from 71 cities in the United States. They found 506 cases of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. Of those, 280 cases were women who had been murdered. 128 were women who had gone missing, and 98 cases were of unknown status. The median age of women in these cases was 29. The oldest was an 83-year-old elder. The youngest was a one-year-old baby. Through all of this, one thing is clear. The safety of indigenous women and girls is not being protected, and this is a problem that like Mia Henderson's murder, we as true crime consumers cannot forget. I initially wanted to see if there were any memorial efforts online for Mia, the victim of arguably the most famous crime at UA. I found several entries on findagrave.com, which might not be regarded as the most reliable of sources. There's an entry on there about a post on Mia's MySpace page, remember, she died in 2007, about her honoring the women in her life who inspired her, including her mom and her grandmother. I tried to find it on the actual website as well. The act of searching up myspace.com in 2019 was surreal and unpleasant. Did you know that the site is navigated horizontally instead of scrolling up and down like a normal web page? Ultimately, I couldn't find her on there either. At Graham Greenley Residence Hall itself, there is really nothing to indicate that anything bad ever happened there. No plaque or memorial or tree planted in her honor anywhere on campus. In fact, housing and residential life are notoriously tight-lipped about the murder. A friend of mine, Joseph Rogers, who works as a production supervisor for UATV, lived in Graham Greenley last year during his freshman year of college. Here's what he had to say about how the murder is treated within the residence hall. It is a bit of a legend. When I would tell people I live in Graham Greenlee, they'd be like, oh, you live in the murder dorm. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> um, the RAs, basically, um, you could ask any of the RAs. They, um, they would tell you that it happened, but um, they wouldn't tell us where or who was involved. Basically, they wouldn't tell us anything besides that it happened and basic general knowledge, no, no specifics. I don't know if any of it is, or what is true and what is not, but what I heard is that um, I believe it was an argument that happened between two roommates. Um, one of them ended up stabbing the other. Um, I don't know if she died in Graham Greenlee or at the hospital. That part was always fuzzy for me, but um, I know that happened. <laughs> and so somebody was fatally stabbed in Graham Greenlee. For the people who were actually living in there, um, we didn't take it too seriously. Clearly that strategy of being vague has not stopped the story of the murder from spreading, which brings us to the other, more obvious legacy of the murder, which is that it remains the most commonly told crime story about UA. Rumors about the murder abound, 
One of the most popular ones is that the 2001 movie The Roommate, about a mentally ill college freshman who becomes obsessed with her roommate and starts to take out the other people in her life, is inspired by Mia and Galerica's relationship. I have not been able to find a single piece of credible evidence that the movie was actually based on what happened at UA. It seems that The Roommate was actually inspired by the 1992 film Single White Female. I haven't seen the movie, but in reading up on it, none of the plot details match what really happened at UA. Though, if you Google Mia's murder, suggestions like the roommate movie True Story will pop up. Another way the story has been twisted around is that searching for the room where the murder took place is a not uncommon challenge for UA students. And full disclosure, I thought about trying this my freshman year during the annual Halloween party at Graham Greenley. That's a Harry Potter-themed party the dorm throws every year. And side note, I still find it odd that UA would throw a supernatural-themed party in the dorm where a student was literally murdered. But that's just my own opinion. Honestly, I am ashamed to admit that I wanted to go find the murder room. This was before I really started thinking critically about what it means to be a person who enjoys learning about crimes and the responsibilities that come with it. Honestly, I think that's something that is missing from a lot of the retellings of the Graham Greenlee murder. When I first heard the story, there was no mention of either woman's name or anything about them personally, only the crime. Even after I began seriously researching the murder for this episode, I had trouble keeping Henderson and Harrison's roles straight in my head. I could blame it on their similar last names, but that's not an excuse to focus on the sensationalism of the crime rather than the humanity of these women's lives. Mia and Galerica were practically missing from their own story. They could have been anyone. Maybe that's part of the reason why the story is so popular. It's an easy legend to spread. Five words you can mutter to the person walking with you on your first tour of campus or at a social event in the courtyard. A girl stabbed her roommate there. There is so much ambiguity in that, though, that the story is both true in its simplicity and almost inaccurate in its oversimplification. The oral history of this crime, the way the story circulates, is not unlike the way ghost stories spread. Now, I have already taken a deep dive into ghost stories at UA. In fact, that was the very first episode of this show almost one year ago today. Go check it out if you're interested. And I cannot end this episode without addressing the phantom in the room. Yes, there are rumors that Graham Greenlee is haunted. I did not want to go into detail regarding these rumors out of respect for Mia's legacy. Because unlike the supposed ghosts that haunt Maricopa Hall and Old Main... We know that Mia was a real person. She died only 12 years ago, which might feel like an eternity in college time, but is not actually that long ago. And as we've discussed today, there are many people alive who still remember her. And even though those rumors and the abridged story of her death will continue to spread, may we all, at least, remember her name. From the Daily Wildcat and Camp Student Radio, this has been Wildcat Crime. Thank you all for listening. Till next time!
Thank you for listening to this episode of Wildcat Crime. If you liked it and want to hear more from us in the future, please make sure to rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends. Follow us on social media. We're on Instagram and Twitter at Wildcat Crime Pod. Feel free to message us with questions, comments, or episode ideas. You can also reach us by emailing our new email address, wildcatcrime at dailywildcat.com. This episode was researched, written, recorded, and edited by yours truly, Vanessa Ontiveros. Recorded in Camp Studios. Our logo was designed by Nick Trujillo. Our music was Ghost Dance by Kevin McLeod. Special thanks to everyone at Camp Student Radio. Special thanks to everyone at the Daily Wildcat. And a very special thanks to everyone who appeared on the podcast today. AJ Flick, Sam Minkler, and Joseph Rogers. Once again, thank you for listening. This has been Wildcat Crime. Till next time. Mm-hmm.